Hello listeners. Welcome to Itihasan, a Indic history podcast. And you're listening to episode 18 of the season Vijayanagara. This is the 7th installment in the foundation series of this season. In the last episode, a phoenix rises, we followed the rise of Sangamas and the foundation of Vijayanagara. Just as Vijayanagara came out of the womb of destiny and took its first breath, its nemesis and arch-rival, the Bahamini kingdom was being forged in the same fires of Deccan. Just as Vijayanagara is important to the history of the South, so is the Bahamini kingdom for the Deccan. The Bahamini period covers a very important part of the history of medieval India. Its rise corresponds to the great turbulence and chaos that plagued the Deccan, especially during the spontaneous rebellions against the Tughlaq overlords. Vijayanagara and Bahaminis were two sides of the same coin. Right from the moment of their birth, their swords and destinies were locked into each other. In light of that, I won't be doing justice to this season if I wasn't telling you the story of Bahaminis. It's a fascinating story indeed. The rise and fall of Bahaminis had a ripple effect on Vijayanagara's own fortunes. in ways it couldn't anticipate or predict interestingly both the bahamini and vijayanagara rose almost at the same time from the same conflicts with the same enemy the tughlaqs the both their conflicts with tughlaqs were happening independently the hoysala vijayanagara varangal combination fought the tughlaqs in the south and the bahaminis fought them in the heart of deccan The primary sources that I have used to tell the story of Bahaminis are mainly three. The first one being an authoritative work, The Bahaminis of Deccan, by late Harun Khan Sherwani, published in 1946. Harun Khan was a distinguished Indian historian and a Padma Bhushan awardee. The next two sources are The History of Bahamini Dynasty by Major J.S. King, published in 1900s. during the british raj and finally the work bahman shah by dr s a q husaini published in 1960 we saw in the previous episodes how by the end of the second quarter of the 14th century almost the whole of indian subcontinent was under the despotic rule of the tughlaq sultan mohammad bin tughlaq the khiljis from the north first set their foot in the deccan during the end of the 13th century as we saw in the previous foundation episodes alauddin khilji's conquests were on shaky foundation with constant banners of rebellions being raised against him and the tughlaqs had to subjugate the deccan all over again after the fall of khilji's it was only during the tughlaqs rule that the entire of deccan and the south were systematically conquered The modern warfare techniques and blitzkrieg style of Tughlaqs and Khiljis were partly responsible for catching each of the four kingdoms off guard in their encounters. Not to mention their lack of unity, which came in a bit too late for them. As we saw earlier, it wasn't until Veera Bharlala decided to unite many of these bickering forces to put up a fight against the genocidal Islamic onslaught. 
It was after that that the tide began to turn against the Tughlaqs in the south. And this tide was also aided by yet another tide in the Deccan, which came in the form of Bahaminis. Just as the Tughlaqs thought that they had gained a strong foothold, they were washed away by both these tides, first from the south and then the Deccan. With it, the Tughlaqs were effectively cut off from the half of the country and had to fall back to Delhi, abandoning their new capital of Daulatabad. Having said that, the Tughlaq influence on the Deccan and the south was very much visible, and especially in the Deccan. Many monuments in the great rocky citadel of Daulatabad, the dome at Beed in Maharashtra, inscriptions in Bodhan, and Hyderabad. The Nusk script, in which the Tughlaq court language of Persian was written, found its way into the Bahmani Sultanate too. The sloppy walls supporting the semicircular dome, in typical Tughlaq style too, left its mark on the Deccan. And finally, the system of government and administration of the Tughlaqs too was initially adopted by the Bahmanis, and only reformed in the 15th century to slow down the decay and rot that had set in by then. A bit too late though for the Bahmanis. Clearly, the impact of Tughlaqs was significant on both the Deccan and the Bahmanis. Before we can understand the rise of Bahmanis, we need to understand the fall of Tughlaqs. After all, one empire's loss is another's gain. And to understand the fall, we need to look at aspects of the Tughlaq administration and policies a bit closely. In the previous Foundation episodes, I mentioned the acts of religious persecution, plunder and pillage by the Khiljis and Tughlaqs. While this in itself had grown a lot of resentment amongst the Deccan and Southern population, I have to point out how the Tughlaq economic and administrative policies too added fuel to the fire, ultimately bringing down the whole Tughlaq edifice. in Deccan and South. And hence, it's important for us to first look at the administrative setup of Tughlaq government. The Tughlaqs had dominated almost the whole of country, starting from Delhi to Madurai. The whole empire of Tughlaqs was divided into 23 administrative domains. Of these 23 domains, the regions of Jajnagar, modern-day Orissa, Marhat, modern-day Maharashtra, Tilanga, modern-day Tilangana, Bidar, Kampili, Dwara Samudra, and Malwa were considered as a southern part of the empire. The Tughlaq Empire had two capitals effectively. One was the old capital in Delhi and the new capital in Devagiri, also named as Daulatabad. During the first half of Muhammad bin Tughlaq's reign, he supposedly had a good control over his domains. fully dominating it both from military and administrative standpoint Ziauddin Barani details in his chronicles how every time a new territory was added to the Tughlaq empire a hierarchy of officials were sent to this new domain to administer it even the farthest of the domains were kept under control with the help of them While the tributes and regular taxes were carted off to the central treasury in the Thousand Pillar Palace built by Khilji in Delhi, there was a pyramidal governance structure 
and the provinces to rule them effectively. Each province had a governor at the top who reported to the Sultan in Delhi and sent him men, taxes and the share of wealth from the provinces. And due to the long distances between the provinces and the capital of Delhi, far off in the north, the provincial governors were given significant autonomy in their decision-making to make it easier to administer and maintain order. These governors had their own revenue officials, nobility, ministries, divans, and army divisions under their direct command. The governor too had a large patronage of office allotted to him. And while other higher posts were appointed directly by the reigning sultan, the rest of the posts were directly appointed by the governor without any interference from the sultan at the capital. With this, we can see that a great latitude was given to these provincial governors. But there was one position that was really interesting and peculiar. It's called Amiran-e-Sada. And they reported to the governor. The officers holding this position were mostly of noble descent or belonged to the upper middle class. And they were in direct contact with the people over whom they held sway. These officers were the bridge between the provincial governor and the people. And by transitive property, they were the only bridge between the sultan and the people. The people experienced governance and the sultan's rule through their interactions with these officers. So it's no wonder that these officers developed an innate pride of office and began to show a level of dignity and arrogance against their overlords in many administrative matters, which they undoubtedly knew better due to their experience with the people of the empire. And when Muhammad bin Tughlaq finally had enough of their self-importance, he decides to crack his whip with a targeted policy to suppress them. And to find a reason to punish these officials, he makes them a scapegoat for the rebellions in Deccan and South which, to be honest, most of them were not even directly or indirectly responsible for. While the causes for the rebellions against the Tughlaqs were many, but the spark for the Deccan's attempt to break away started from unexpected quarters, at least from Muhammad bin Tughlaq's perspective. The spark was a character we already saw a few times in the previous Foundation episodes. It was the Sultan's maternal cousin, who held a Jagir in Sagar, Bahauddin Garshasp, who had either rebelled against Muhammad Tughlaq or was set up as one by his rivals at the court. Either way, he became enemy number one in the eyes of the Tughlaq Sultan and ended up becoming a fugitive after losing a battle near Devagiri against Sultan's commanders Jahan Malik Ahmad Ayaz and Mujiruddin Avi Rija. We saw in one of the previous Foundation episodes, The Ashes of Kampili, how Bhaudin Garshasp fled to Kampili and Kampiladeva had offered him protection, leading to an epic showdown between Tughlaqs and Kampili, leading to the fall of Kampili. And finally, ending with the Hoysala ruler, Veera Bharlala, surrendering the fugitive Garshasp to Mohammed bin Tughlaq. 
we won't go in depth into this again for those who are interested for a full back story please do listen to the foundation episode ashes of kampili so the effect that this rebellion and initial success of bahaudin garshas had was that it convinced the sultan muhammad bin tughlaq that it was necessary to have a capital situated in a position more central than delhi he consulted his advisers the members of arbab-e-dawal or advisory council at delhi and after some discussion the two cities of ujjain and devagiri were chosen as the candidates for the new capital but devagiri ended up being chosen as a new capital and it was initially renamed as quwatul islam and then it was changed to daulatabad with the new tughlaq capital chosen mohammed bin tughlaq ordered his entire population court administration and nobility to uproot themselves from delhi and migrate to daulatabad the wealth comforts and prestige of devagiri increased by leaps and bounds overnight with this move though it's important to note that hindus of delhi didn't migrate to it and instead chose to remain there itself interestingly the hindus in delhi and hindus in daulatabad ended up becoming even richer the hindus in delhi now were free of the tughlaq interference the hindus of daulatabad had immense wealth from delhi transferred to them indirectly with the capital being moved there the idea underlying the decision to move the capital seems to have been that the sultan would go to the new capital at certain intervals and a large number of reliable officers and nobility would be stationed there so that the vast tughlaq empire may have a powerful organization right in the heart of the deccan on which the empire could depend delhi still remained one of the two capitals of the empire with its vast hindu population and a continuous influx of muslim immigrants from beyond the northwestern frontiers which daulatabad could not hope for little did the sultan realize that the very amirs whom he was transplanting from the traditional capital of india to a city 1000 miles away would play a crucial role in shaking up the foundations of the tughlaq empire and leading to the independence of the deccan which was to last for 3 and a half centuries the 20 years between 1327 AD the year of the establishment of daulatabad and 1347 AD the date of the proclamation of the independence of the deccan may be divided in two distinct periods during the first period 1327 to 1341 AD there was some semblance of peace in south india and the new capital of daulatabad turned into a safe haven for security and wealth the idea of a second capital during this period was a great success and the policy of establishing a large and loyal population there was supposedly bearing a fruit the sultan was constantly on the march from daulatabad to delhi and vice versa in 1328 ad which is the same year kampili fell he even went to the northern capital for a couple of years in order to suppress rebellions 
in the northwestern provinces not only was the deccan perfectly quiet during the period of his absence but even the northern rebellions were quelled without much effort and there was an appearance of peace and calm in the empire as recorded even by ibn batuta in 1333 ad but tughlaqs had no inkling that this was a lull before the storm and it will be this storm that will wash away the whole of muhammad bin tughlaqs empire from under his feet even before he has a chance to react it so happened that while the sultan was on the way from warangal to dalatabad it was rumored that he had fallen ill and succumbed to his illness this incited an amir malik hoshang son of kamaluddin gurg to revolt however it turned out that the sultan was fine and healthy and sultan's army gives this rebel a chase and is forced to surrender to the tughlaq general qutluq khan who are now been appointed as a viceroy of daulatabad after the appointment of qutluq khan and nusrat khan for administering the province of telangana in bidar the sultan left for lahore in the northwest to suppress yet another rebellion and soon muhammad bin tughlaq realized that his idea of having a central capital in the heart of deccan was not a totally pragmatic one he concluded the main cause of the unqualified success of the mabar revolt as well as the ever recurring rebellions in the deccan and south was a belligerent behavior of those very amirs whom he had sent to daulatabad and when he left for the north he gave orders that those who had been directed to migrate to the south should now re-migrate to the north in the 1335 ad after suppressing the revolt in lahore muhammad bin tughlaq headed south again to suppress the nascent mabar revolt by sayyid ahsan of kaital which is in punjab the author of the mabar revolt was the father of sayyid ibrahim the purse bearer of the sultan and had been appointed as the provincial governor of the mabar or the koramandal region with madurai as a capital earlier Sayyid Ahsan joined hands with a faction of nobility in Daulatabad which had been earlier forced to migrate to the new capital. These nobles now refused to move back to Delhi fearing their obvious loss of influence and prestige. The division of the army that the sultan had sent to suppress them ended up joining the cause of the rebels instead. and so the sultan was forced to march against mabar rebels himself he intended to proceed to madurai by the way of warangal but coincidentally there was an epidemic that was raging there the sultan himself gets infected with it and falls ill this forces him to return to daulatabad leaving his proxy nayab wazir malik maqbul The Mabar rebellion was followed by the rebellion in Warangal. 
and at the same time Harihara and Bukka were taking baby steps in establishing the dominance in the Carnatic under the umbrella of Hoysala's Veerabhalala like we saw in the last few episodes after the, the fall of Kampili the proxy governor Malik Makbul had to face a position of the local Hindu chieftains one of whom we saw earlier Krishna Nayak or also known as Kapaiya Nayak saw the impending fall of the Tughlaqs and he rose up in rebellion to drive out Malik Makbul from Warangal If you remember Krishna Nayak had also attended the grand meeting of Veera Bhallala along with Harihara like we saw in the earlier episode as revealed by the Chitradurga inscription In this connection I have to point out that the historian Harun Khan Sherwani claims that Harihara was earlier in a pro Tughlaq faction and had been appointed as a governor of Bellary sometime in between 1327 to 1344 AD and it seems Harihara switched sides and went over to the Hoysala side as per Harun Khan Sherwani's claim while we explored this angle in the previous episode and found it on a weaker footing but what is interesting is Harun Khan makes no claim of Harihara and Bukka being converted to Islam and then turning into apostates like we saw previously he doesn't because it's a baseless narrative and Harun's omission only bolsters that argument either way Krishna Nayaka Veera Bhallala Harihara and Bukka form an alliance unite against the Tughlaqs down south and throw off its yoke With this a new political alignment had formed in the south and Tughlaqs effectively lost all the territories in that region By this point the only territories which were still under Tughlaqs were the regions of Western Deccan and Daulatabad So with the deep south liberated from Tughlaqs it was now the time for the Deccan proper to liberate itself Its first attempt for independence came in the form of a rebellion by Nusrat Khan whom we saw earlier as being appointed as a governor of Telangana ruling from Bidar Nusrat Khan had refused to send the stipulated 1 lakh of tankas to the sultan's treasury and proclaimed himself as a king This rebel was quickly defeated by the viceroy of Daulatabad Kutluk Khan and he was sent as a prisoner to Delhi the next deccan insurrection was a rebellion of ali shah in 1340 ad ali shah was a nephew of zafar khan who was the previous viceroy of the dead alauddin khilji ali shah was sent by the viceroy kutluk khan to gulbarga to collect taxes instead of carrying out the orders He proclaimed himself as a king at Dharur and was joined by his three brothers Hasan Gangu, Ahmad and Muhammad. Remember the name Hasan Gangu, it's going to be important. They three kill a local officer who was one of the most trusted confidants of the Sultan Muhammad bin Tughlaq. And they captured the city of Sagar 
which was a stronghold of Bidar. But then this victory was short-lived. After Qutlug Khan defeats Malik Shah at Dharur and drives him out of Bidar. He then arrests Malik Shah and the Sultan had him exiled to his ancestral home in Ghazni. In this way, Qutlug Khan was very loyal and invaluable to the Sultan in suppressing the last two serious rebellions in the Deccan. The last rebellion convinces Muhammad bin Tughlaq that there was something inherently wrong in his system of government. It was the cream of the old nobility whom he had sent from Delhi to the distant parts of his empire that were proving to be the chief culprits. In the Deccan Madurai, these nobles were the cause of all the troubles and rebellions. Reflecting on all of this, the Sultan decides to take an extreme step of replacing the entire nobility across his empire with a new nobility that came from a poor background with a lowly parentage, composed of people who were Sultan's own puppets and entirely under his thumb. This policy, along with the changing the capital multiple times, are very radical steps for any age. And at the time, it was something no other ruler before him had even dared to attempt. This policy, especially of replacing the nobility, was on the same lines as his radical policy of issuing token currency across his empire. Both these decisions of his shake the foundations of the Tughlaq Empire. And it is important that we take a quick detour to understand Muhammad bin Tughlaq's token currency system that had a far-reaching impact on the health of his empire and the role it played in the independence of Deccan. And here we will end this episode in which we saw the beginning of the end of Tughlaq's and the impact of Muhammad bin Tughlaq's foolhardy policies which indirectly led to the Deccan Amirs rebelling against their Tughlaq overlords. We will continue this story in the next episode and also look at the birth of Bahamanis. I sincerely hope the listeners enjoyed this episode and if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave a rating and a review wherever it is that you are listening. A huge thank you for taking the time to listen to the show. I hope to see you soon in the next episode. Till then, this is Narendra Vikram, your host and narrator, signing off. Hope you have a great week ahead.